Welcome to It's Complicated, a diversity, equity, and inclusion podcast by O'Melveny and Myers and Ivy Planning Group. Now here's your host, Gary Smith. Hi, my name's Gary Smith. I'm your moderator and host for today. I'm the founding partner of Ivy Planning Group, a diversity, equity, and inclusion management consulting firm. I want to Really, thank you all for joining us. This is the inaugural episode of the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion podcast series. It's complicated. A project with Ivy and O'Melveny and Myers. We're really looking forward to creating a, an engaging conversation because what we've realized is that no matter what your beliefs or positions, we have been thrust into a diversity, equity, and inclusion crisis. How are private companies responding? Do they have a responsibility and an obligation to do so? If they do take action, what risks and rewards could result? Ultimately, when we think about all of these elements, it's why it's complicated. Joining me today, we have a phenomenal group of panelists, and I'd like to introduce them. Orlando Ashford, the former CEO of Holland America and current board member of several organizations. Bradley Butlin, chair of Melvin and Myers. Fabiola Anton, Manager, Organizational Development of the United States Tennis Association. And last but certainly not least, Teresa Roseborough, the Executive Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary of Home Depot. Welcome, and again, thank you all for joining us today. Looking forward to a fascinating conversation. Teresa, why don't you start? Let's hear from you. Good morning, Gary, and good morning to my co-panelists, and thank you, O'Melveny, for the opportunity to be with you today and to talk about such an important topic. I really do want to salute the firm for taking on these conversations, because I think opening the door to this kind of discussion is an important first step on our journey of becoming a more united and inclusive world. You asked the question whether it's complicated, and my answer is yes and no. My strongest answer is no. There is a true north here. There is a right answer to this. We all have to stand against the disease of hate and all of its consequences. We all have to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion because it's simply the right thing to do. The yes is figuring out the best way to do that can be hard. It can take having a lot of minds and brains in the room. It can take innovation and creativity because the baseline of understanding and exposing gaps can be difficult. The the baseline of understanding how best to close gaps and rid ourselves of disparities is difficult. Getting a vision into our own unconscious biases and working actively to conquer those every day can be difficult. So while I agree that it can be complicated and there's not a definitive, clear path ahead of us, our objectives are not complicated. Thanks, Teresa. I appreciate that. Brad, what's your perspective on this? Do you find it complicated? Uh, Thanks, Gary. And and, um, I echo Teresa's sentiments. It's an honor to be on this panel talking about this very important question. Uh, At O'Melveny, we've talked about this time as an existential crisis. After the horrific killing of George Floyd, I heard from many of our colleagues who were in real pain and who rightfully expected the firm to 
live up to our values of leadership, excellence, and especially citizenship. We knew we had to take immediate action. I felt a real urgency. Shortly after George Floyd's killing, I formed a racial justice committee to coordinate the efforts of our diverse partners with our pro bono, diversity and inclusion, and corporate social responsibility teams. And I saw energy like I've never seen before. Uh, I was also one of the founders of the law firm Anti-Racist Alliance, a group of over 200 law firms that will be addressing systemic racism in critical areas such as education, public policy, and homelessness. So our way forward was very clear. And so I agree with Teresa in that sense that um, it's not complicated. But now I'll tell you why I think it is complicated. From a strict business perspective, we don't have public shareholders. Our partners are our owners, and they have a strong collective say in how we respond to crisis. In a sense, that makes it a little easier for us, but we still have to respect different perspectives and opinions. And so what we debated wasn't the cause. It was how to best support one another, understanding that there are different viewpoints, especially in these polarized times. Inclusion at O'Melveny means all voices are heard, and that's not always easy, but it would have been much harder for us to do nothing or not enough. You know, what would our people and our clients have thought if we just stayed quiet on the sidelines of a historic movement? Personally, I could not have lived with myself. You know, once we started having these open conversations, there was some sobering but inspiring moments. I mean, sobering because you got to hear people pouring out their souls and their their real hurt in ways that we hadn't seen before. But inspiring because people did speak up. We had this brave young black associate, a, a junior associate who addressed the firm during the firm-wide implicit bias discussions that we held quickly after Mr. Floyd's death. And Gary, I don't recall whether that was one of your sessions, but she spoke clearly and she spoke loudly about her experiences. And to hear her experiences and perspectives, to learn from them, and to know how she felt comfortable enough to share them, those were the rewards. And we will put those lessons into action. So I agree I agree with Teresa that uh, it's simple. I mean, we, we have to be on the right side of the moral issues here after decades, centuries of systemic racism. But, you know, how you go about it, that's the part that, you know, is, is complicated. It's always about the execution. So I agree with Teresa. No, I appreciate the response. And I think it is important because I, I want us to, to think about you both mentioned this due north. You both mentioned this clarity of purpose. It's clear this is supposed to happen. And yet, at a time when it, when it seems like diversity is under attack, it does feel like organizations are pausing. And I want us to think about why. And so I'm curious from a personal standpoint, you know, how do you manage your own, you know, sort of balancing your own personal responsibilities with your concerns for those that are under your watch and, quite frankly, the organizations you lead? Fabiola, what do you say? Thank you so much, Gary. And again, thank you to O'Melveny for having me. You know, after the horrific uh, killing of George Floyd, you know, certainly I was affected because, you know, I'm a Black woman. My husband is Black. My children are Black. And, 
it was a deeply painful feeling to witness someone lose their life in that manner. And the feeling was different given the visual, but the sadness over the loss of a Black life wasn't unfamiliar. And for me personally, there are friends and, and families and, and countless conversations that happen to help me sort through those emotions. But part of my managing those feelings in the work environment is to support voices and talents of my fellow colleagues. And to be clear, I'm wholly outside of the DNI space at the US Tennis Association where I work. And I work in learning and leadership, but that doesn't mean that I'm not willing to open up myself and, and lead with empathy. Every day I look for opportunities to help someone who might be having trouble navigating our environment or might be on the margins for reasons that may not even be as obvious as skin color. And frankly, that's part of doing the work to build an inclusive culture. We have to make it a priority. Um, and as Brad mentioned, we, we certainly also have to respect those different perspectives and opinions that come to the table. Uh, so it's, it's, tough to manage, um, but it's something that needs to be done because, again, it, it must be a priority for us all. Well, thank you so much. Orlando, what's your experience been from both a personal standpoint of, of leading through this time, but also having to explain to folks that just may not understand this moment? Yeah, so first off, Gary, I want to thank you, Ivy Group, O'Melveny, for allowing me to join this discussion. Very important, and I'm excited to be here. A couple words that you use that I'll, that I'll react to. So you started by talking about this being a DEI crisis. And early in my career, I had a boss once tell me, you never want to waste a crisis. And that's our opportunity here. And so with the killing of George Floyd and all the other challenging issues around diversity and inclusion and, and, and the awareness that's being created and the energy that's being created, so we don't want to waste this crisis and want to make sure that we, we leverage this to drive and enable change. And so as a, as a leader, I ran a large organization. I serve on a, on a number of boards. And so in, in my experience, one of the key elements to creating awareness and, and positive dynamics around diversity and inclusion is, is building a culture and where people can show up as their true authentic selves, can have open and honest dialogue with peers, with um, members of my teams uh, in, in ways that I never have before, where uh, it's allowed people to truly see me, truly see some of the issues that exist. And, and we don't always agree, but to be able to have that real authentic dialogue. As a, as a, a person that's spent a lot of years in human resources, trying to enable and promote the well-being of your employees is critical. Employees cannot deliver their best results in their organizations if they cannot show up as their best selves. And so you have to manage their career well-being. You have to try to help manage their financial well-being. You have to try to manage their physical well-being. And now we're getting into what we'll call some of the more emotive or emotional uh, elements of well-being as it relates to their self. So I, I'm African-American. I have two, um, two sons. And so... When you see some of the imagery and some of the issues that are happening, I envision, whether it's myself, really more, I, I, I worry about my two sons in some of those situations. And so that emotion is something that I personally am managing. But for the first time in a long time, I'm being able to bring that aspect of myself to work and have that dialogue with my peers and with my colleagues. And that change is what I think gives me hope that we might be on the cusp of trying to have a real breakthrough around this issue. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. And, and I will say that it does feel like 
this is turning from a, a moment to a movement because I do find more and more people wanting to have the conversation. I'm finding that, that colleagues across the client universe we support are saying, we want to know more about this. So there are two audiences I'd ask you to think about. You know, think about the audience of folks that this was their first exposure to social injustice. And then the other audience that was in essence saying, this is our reality. This is our everyday. This is something we can't take for granted. So, so I'm, you know, when we think about the Orlando's comment about never wasting a crisis, you know, Brad, Teresa, I'm curious in your environments, how have you been sort of opportunistic around this moment? Well, at the Home Depot, one of our responses was first to be declarative with our associates, our customers, our investors, that we stood against hatred and discrimination and that we plan to redouble our efforts to be a force against hatred uh, in this country and also redoubled our commitment to diversity and inclusion internally and diversity and inclusion in our vendor and supplier community. We also launched a series of caring conversations and initially invited our African-American resource group, which we call AA Pulse, and also some of our African-American leaders, including myself, to share information about our journeys with our colleagues. And I liken those conversations to the experience of oyster with a pearl. An oyster uh, gets exposed to a piece of grit and they gloss over it to make it something more comfortable to, to live with. And I think we as African-Americans have that, had that experience. There are a number of events in our lives that create grit and roughness and uncomfortable surfaces. And we've smoothed those over in order to be able to be effective and functional every day. And then George Floyd came and kind of stripped the pearl coating away and exposed that grit, sometimes at great volume. And one of my colleagues said, I'm happy to share my experience and sort of relive them again and the stress and trauma of them again, if this is an opportunity to move us forward, if these conversations are really going to help. But if I'm just reliving a personal pain, then I'm not so sure that I'm available to do this. So we did commit that these conversations were going to help take our company and our community to the next level. And uh, as Orlando said, I think they have been important to making clear that our workplace is a place where people can come and share these experiences and bring their authentic selves to work by telling their colleagues how they experience America, how they experience the workday, how they uh, experience everyday life. And I think as we learn more about each other and share more about each other, we make our workplace more inclusive. We make our easier for people to contribute to the success of their environment and to the people around them. Uh, and we contribute to making our communities stronger. I agree, this is Brad. There's no question that the brutality we all saw inflicted on George Floyd was a national wake-up call. And it was a call that reverberated loudly throughout the legal industry. At O'Melveny, diversity and inclusion has long been one of our strategic plans pillars. So it was already a high priority for us to have a dedicated team, including two partners, a director and a manager, to keep the firm learning, progressing, and making the necessary changes to move us forward. 
this should be obvious to every organization by now, but we already knew that a focus on diversity and inclusion makes us a better firm and positions us to serve our clients more effectively. And clients have been very vocal, rightfully so and helpfully so, about the composition of teams serving them. We're in a service business and we do need to partner with our clients. But after Mr. Floyd's killing, our people of color raised their voices loudly, a blessing in a very dark time for which we are deeply grateful. And our DEI work assumed an urgent and unmatched priority. We asked ourselves, how could we be better in this area? We mobilized our partners, our office heads, and our employee networks, and quickly connected first with all of our Black colleagues and then with our entire O'Melveny family to determine what people needed in order to cope. And, and a lot of people did need support to cope. We created safe spaces for everyone to talk and we listened. We engaged our outstanding employee assistance program and had help at the ready. Recommendations flowed in like I'd never seen before about the things we could be doing differently, doing more of, or doing better. And I'm talking about recommendations from staff and recommendations from attorneys who had just started, summer associates, and now we're acting on those recommendations. Two, two imperatives rose to the top, diversity training and increased representation of people of color throughout the firm. As I mentioned, we held implicit bias discussions for the whole firm. And Gary, your organization was a helpful part of that. And we were already focused on increasing the number of people of color in our partnership. We're a firm that strongly believes that our culture sets us apart, a culture that's values-based and inclusive. Our DE&I efforts over the past decade have prioritized making the behavioral and programmatic changes that keep enhancing that culture. So now we're, we've got this rich feedback. We've received it. We're all learning. We've got a lot more to learn. And we're having a lot of you know, discussions internally and externally. We're taking actions that we feel are needed to improve our culture even more. And this time, I think maybe most importantly, our focus is on structural bias. You know, none of this, you know, we're doing really great, but we can do a little bit better on the margins. No. There is, there is structural bias in our country. There is structural bias at our firm. Uh, I believe at every firm. And so we have a project underway now that's targeted at redesigning key areas such as recruiting, staffing matters, performance management, and professional development. And we will be deconstructing our processes to uncover unconscious impediments to diversity and develop new approaches. I want to I want to j jump in and just add to that. I I, I really agree with 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 the points that, that that were just outlined that Brad just outlined. Um, in in my experience with this work, whether it's uh, organizations that I've been with and uh, things that I've seen, having room for talking and discussing is is critical. But more important than that, or on top of that, you have to have environments where people are actually listening. Because I think uh, I've been in a number of sessions over my life and career where I've had a chance to talk and tell stories. But if others aren't really listening, it actually can make things worse because then you feel like you're being marginalized or, or not being appreciated. 
again, not wasting this crisis. I think there is more listening than I've ever seen uh, in, in, in my career on this topic, which is encouraging. And then the next step, which is ultimately what enables and drives change, is that people have to actually make a decision. People have to do things different. People have to decide to change their policies, change their programs, look at their structures, which you talked about, you know, looking at the way you recruit and the way you rehire and what biases are baked into those processes. And so I think the next piece to this, for those organizations and those people that are listening, that is great. Thank you. The next piece is what are the decisions that you're going to actually make so that the outcomes are different moving forward? Fabiola, I'm curious, when you think about your organization, you know, how have you found that you've had to sort of look at your underlying processes, you know, following up on that notion of do we have to reinvent and rebuild ourselves? Have you had any experience there with your organization? Yes, yes, certainly. And to be honest, because we are a mission-driven organization, we serve our players, we serve our communities, and we build partnerships across the tennis ecosystem um, because we have that responsibility. I think the focus over uh, the last several decades of the U.S. Tennis Association has been about our outward-facing uh, brand. And now we've seen this shift uh, in really understanding the uh, the inclusive experiences of our staff, which is, of course, um, something that I, I feel like we've missed over the past several years and has been a, a huge missed opportunity. And I believe you know, one of the most successful elements we've had in place for some time that speaks to kind of our culture um, has been our business resource groups. And, and we've relied on that community of BRGs to provide not only um, support through this racial unrest, but through this entire pandemic. And the members have been honest in expressing the need to create a common understanding of the racial issues and they voice their actions that they, they want to see and, and things that they want to um, have move ahead, which has led to recommendations that everyone in the company, for example, receive a copy of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And we're currently having these facilitated discussions around the major themes of that book. I, I also believe that, again, that this is not easy. This is difficult work, but we've had the investment and the support of our senior leaders to ensure that uh, we are making this long-term commitment. And the push of the employees has encouraged that leadership to think strategically about not just what we want to do today, but how we want to show up five years from now. Certainly, you know, one major step that we've made this year, uh, you may have heard of the U.S. Open. Um, we've had a, an incredible uh, Be Open campaign, which was something that was new for us to put ourselves in, in front of uh, this cause. And we, we also had a Black Lives to the Front initiative that received an overwhelming overwhelmingly positive response um, from from our supporters and, and our, our fans. But also there was, you know, some negative association um, with that because people felt like we were being a little too political. Uh, I, I honestly just feel like that commitment from our senior leaders is, is really what has driven us to think about our conversations a little bit more differently. And we don't want to lose the impetus to be innovative, especially through inclusion. And we're all about innovation at the USTA. Uh, so I certainly see that there's, you know, an opportunity for a shift to to go into the right direction moving forward. Fabiola, you, you've, you've opened a door for me that I, I can't pass up. 
Yeah. It, it appears that during this moment, athletes have truly found their voices. I mean, we're, we're hearing from so many more athletes and they are taking such a positive front facing stance around these issues. And, and what's your opinion? Are you, I mean, are you, are you proud? Are you worried? You know, what do you think when you think about you know, your athletes and how they've shown up during this time? I'm absolutely proud of the voices that we've heard around this issue of the Naomi Osaka's and, and all of those who have been able to, to really use their, their brand in a different way. And I think there is also this discomfort that comes along with it. People have an issue getting comfortable with these conversations and it's, we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. We have to really shake that off. And I think for our athletes, you know, when you look at tennis altogether, this is a this is a sport where it's really focused on that one person. For that one person, they have a fantastic team around them, but it's really about that one person. And as much as some people may say that it's a team sport, it's not. We see that single person really putting themselves out there and putting the pressure on themselves. So to have the, the courage to step outside of that, I think it encourages all the rest of us to push a little further and listen a little bit more deeply and, and and really try to put ourselves in the shoes of those who may be suffering um, in ways that we're not familiar with. And I, you know, I'm thrilled that our athletes are, are pushing forward. You know, courage is the right word. When you think about it, these are really young people and, and they are putting themselves out there. And, and, and I'm not just talking about Colin Kaepernick. You know, we live in a world where of social media and of Twitter as part of that. And, you know, these young people are are risking a lot. Uh, They are risking being tormented by senior leaders, including the president of the United States, of being called out for actions. You you see senior leaders of our country uh, ridiculing, you know, the NBA for for kneeling, for having Black Lives Matter on the courts. It's almost like it's, it seems natural because all of these uh, leagues um, are, are, are banding together. It seems natural, but when you step back, it's extraordinary. I mean, the NHL, which is not a predominantly U.S. league, and it is not a predominantly Black league, you know, had, had players before every game kneeling, you know, on the ice, heads down, and I, I, I just think um, it, it's, it's difficult uh, to even comprehend, you know, the sorts of things that are going on right now and, and the courage. And so I am, you know, I'm inspired by it. No, I appreciate that. You know, Teresa Orlando, you know, as you think about this activism, you all, you all have sat in with a different responsibility. When you think about the calculus of employees, customers, shareholders, and, and the difference between sort of your current set of customers and then your future set of customers, what has been the risk reward for you all as you, as for your organizations as you've thought about these issues? I'll, I'll jump in. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about your question. At the core of this issue, you know, we were using the words earlier about it's the right thing to do, uh, it's the appropriate thing to do, which is all true. But these issues are good for business. And so the reaction that you're, that, you know, we talked about George Floyd particular, but because uh, that has served as sort of the, 
the catalyst for a lot of this new energy, at least at the levels that we're seeing it at today. And so people want to be on the right side of right. And when you when and and so when you bring that energy to your business, again, I talked about well-being before. So promoting and managing the well-being of your employees. But that well-being application is is there for your customers and your shareholders. And so addressing these issues, talking these items through and um, making sure that you're creating an environment, again, where people can show up as their true authentic self in whichever capacity that they're playing in and can uh, and you can service, you can be a good company and deliver good results. So those two things, I think, go together. Um, they don't have to compete with each other. In fact, they should. Uh, and so by building a good culture, a good environment and caring for the well-being of all those uh, three of those constituents can work uh, collectively in building a uh, and enabling a, a, a good company. Another point that I'll just make, which relates to some of the other comments we we're making before, what I, what I am encouraged by is, again, the, some of the decisions that we're starting to see being made as I serve on two different uh, two different boards, and each of them approach this differently. The ITT board, we spent time as a board talking about this issue in a very intentional and purposeful way. Um, there were different uh, questions that people had and reactions that people had, and it, and it sort of came up in one of our sessions. And so the decision was made that we would have a, a separate, dedicated board meeting just focused on social justice, diversity. We responded to what we felt about it personally. And then we talked about what it meant for the organization that we were governing and what we were bringing to our other organizations that we were a part of. And again, I've served on the ITT board for going on 10 years and we never had a dialogue like that. And so I was encouraged about the ability to show up in a completely different way. The other board that I serve on, which is uh, Hershey Entertainment and Resorts, um, they have had a, a robust approach to attacking this issue. Um, they had employee resource groups aligned against the various ethnicities that are represented in that organization. One of the things that was new was that they realized they needed to have a dialogue across groups. So they created a, a mixed ethnicity or cross-ethnicity resource group. They call it Merge, where they can force and enable a dialogue uh, for learning cross groups because they realize that needs to be added to this dialogue in order to drive change. So those are the types of things you know that you know, I've been able to uh, see and be a part of that create a new dialogue in a way that supports all of those stakeholders, uh, creating a good company, but at the same time still being able to deliver good, if not even better results as you do it. No, I appreciate that. Teresa, what about you? What's that balance been for your organization? Um, I'm inspired by what both Fabiola, Orlando, and Brad have said about the strength that our organizations can bring to this uh, movement. And I agree with what you observed, that, that we are at the beginning of a movement. This does feel like an existential time when things are going to be different going forward because of the, the energy that people are bringing to now, and what we discovered at the Home Depot is that we've got a long history of great acts, uh, lots of concerted actions to support the African-American community. We're in the city of Atlanta, and Georgia's our home state. We've been very, very active in supporting underserved communities here, but also across the country. We've been active in trying to improve educational outcomes We've been active in promoting diversity and inclusion within the Home Depot and, and um, have had unconscious bias training as part of our internal training programs. 
but we realized that we could do more and with a more focused set of aspirations. In particular, we decided that just doing things right, just doing things that are good without having a large aspiration that unites them doesn't help you measure outcomes, doesn't help you create metrics that you can hold yourself accountable to. So what we've done is we formed a task force called CREED, Civil Rights, Equality, Economic Inclusion, and Diversity. And the mission of that task force is really to activate the values of the Home Depot to combat racism and discrimination, advance diversity and economic inclusion, and secure equal opportunity for all. And hearkening back to something that Fabiola said about the importance of your own internal values, we realized that to make this organization the successful, that we have to activate around our existing values because that's the only way we can ensure that our actions will be effective, enduring, and impactful. And to a point that Orlando made about this is good for a business, you know, our values that include respect for all people, doing the right thing, building strong relationships, and creating shareholder value all important respect the fact that we as an organization are committed to improving business outcomes and in, and providing a return to our shareholders and a safe place for our associates to grow their lives and careers. And promoting diversity and inclusion and racial and economic justice are important to our success and will make us more successful as a business. And we're hearing strongly from our shareholder community that they agree. They are setting strong expectations for us in terms of what our participation will be in this movement, uh, how we will hold ourselves accountable for improvement in the movement. And it's really been uh, great to see the acknowledgement that's long been proved out by, by studies and in different metrics that companies that are more diverse, that have stronger and more diverse diversity and inclusion programs are more successful. But I'll also give you a poignant example of why we have to be concerned about what happens outside of our four walls. We had a young associate who, going home from work and during one of the curfews after the uh, killing of George Floyd, was stopped by the police. And she had with her the letter that we had provided to her that she was going back and forth from from work to her home uh, with her. The police, uh, she she was a young 22-year-old cashier. The police arrested her four blocks from her home, kept her overnight, refused to call the number on the paperwork that she had with her. Um, She spent the night in jail until she was bailed out the next morning by a a nonprofit organization. And even though she had not been a protester, uh, they still um, offered her her bail. And she was only the only people arrested that night in that community were African-American. And even though you see the photographs of other people who were in that same area uh, were several races, they were the only two arrested. And the impact that that has on her, on her associates uh, that work with her uh, in that store, uh, and the impact it's had on our company to know that she had that experience confirms that we have to be concerned about what happens to our associates outside the walls of the Home Depot. We have to be concerned about the communities that they live in. We have to be concerned about the education they have access to. We have to be concerned about 
the environment uh, that they're asked to to live in so that they can be their most effective and successful when they do come back to work at the Home Depot. Teresa, thank you for sharing that story because all too often the conversation inside of our, our client organizations is that they almost believe that successful employees, vibrant, talented employees can outrun racism. It's almost inferring that that you work here, you're successful, you're part of our family. Surely these things don't happen to you when when you're outside the building because you you're part of us. And and I think it's so important for folks to understand how prevalent these issues are and how much you don't get to turn or flip that switch and turn those realities off. So so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share that story. I, I want to shift the conversation just a little bit. You know, for, you all know I, I've run a firm for 30 years that sets out to fight inequity wherever we find it. And I've been sobered recently by this idea that how, how tenuous and how fragile the progress that we make in this DE and I space can be, how much, no matter how much progress we make, it seems like we're always having to fight and defend and, and take on the next you know, challenger to this concept. So, so I want, I'm going to ask all of you to think about this for a minute. You know, it seems as though diversity and inclusion is always under attack. It seems like we can't be complacent. So, for example, this is, I want your specific response to this. You know, recently the president issued an executive order that literally prohibits what we would think of as traditional diversity, equity, and inclusion training within the federal government. That executive order also went so far as to say any government contractor, anyone receiving government funds, which would now include private sector organizations, also was precluded from being allowed to conduct traditional, very typical diversity, equity, and inclusion training. How have you first and foremost been impacted by the executive order if you have, but equally important, what do you think we should do? Uh, This is Brad. This order is a cynical attempt to tell us everything is fine just the way it is and that challenging the status quo is, quote, un-American, end quote. In my view, not challenging racial inequity in this country is what's un-American. This is a direct attack on giving people the opportunity to learn and empathize. And so it's a direct attack on people of color. Without training and real dialogue, how else are white people going to fully grasp how strongly systemic racism is baked into laws, policies, and attitudes. You know, we, or I should say I, need to fully understand my white privilege and how to view it in historical and cultural context so that I can better understand these systemic issues. And I need to be sure that learning in my firm is protected and promoted and that we do the same systemic analysis internally that the country needs to do externally. And even though we're not a federal government contractor and not directly affected by the ban, if we let things go like this unchallenged, you have to ask yourself, you know, what will be attacked next? Yeah, I'll I'll add something to that because there's a domino effect that happens where if you see the highest levels of authority and leadership within this country uh, feel very comfortable to openly um, attack and challenge uh, something that's actually been, you know, normalized, then others feel the same way. 
Um, I've been engaged in some conversations over the last several months about opportunities, board opportunities, job opportunities, things like that. Um, and in one of those discussions, someone that uh, I was working with I had gone on to my LinkedIn and had written, had read a piece that I had written on my LinkedIn. And it was a piece that talked about George Floyd, talked about racism. I raised this concept of what I call um, a psychological concept called an, an extinction burst. And I was just raising the question as to whether we are seeing the beginning of the end of extreme racism. It was, it was a, a real article, but it was, it was, it was positive. But anyway, this particular person basically said, hey, Orlando, we love your background. We love your talent. We love your experience. We think we'd love to have you as a part of this organization, but it's important for you to understand that if you're going to be a part of this organization, you're not going to be able to write pieces like that anymore. Uh, and so one, I don't work for this firm. We were having discussions about working together. It was, on, it was, a, it was a piece that I wrote to, to, to express my own feelings on my own personal LinkedIn page. And yet in this, it was a very comfortable, casual conversation. It wasn't, it was like, Hey, we love you. We'd love to have you here, but you can't write stuff like that if you're going to be here. So it's a, it's a dangerous, you know, it's a snowball that can gain momentum because if the president or other powerful people can make statements like that, then I can have a conversation with you sitting across the table from you now I'm 52. I've worked for a while, I'm, uh, and so I'm at a point in life where I can, I can reject that pretty easily. But if I was 22 and starting my career, uh, or if I was in my mid 30s and was in the middle of my career and I had a family to support, how would I respond when that kind of pressure comes? And so that's why these types of things are so dangerous because it doesn't just stay right there. Uh, it's wrong in and of itself, but it then creates this domino of wrong that, that, that filters across to many other areas. There's a lot of momentum here. So Teresa, you know, what's, what say you, when you think about the executive order and I'm sure you're aware. I agree with um, what Brad and Orlando said that the executive order seems to be designed to make people pause what has been accepted diversity and inclusion training and to recast it as training attempting, I think the language of the, of the executive order says to create scapegoats uh, or to inculcate a sense of guilt. You know, diversity, equality, and inclusion training is intended to activate us, all of us, minorities and non-minorities, to be able to better understand the world in which we live and the unconscious biases we bring to our interactions with each other and to understand how we can work against those unconscious biases to make everyone feel more included, to make our environments more open to all and to allow all of us to be as successful and productive as possible in the work environment. To recharacterize that training as something that's intended to make one group feel guilty and one group feel empowered is a real injustice to the goals and aspirations of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, education. And so I think it's unfortunate that the executive order and tried to put that cast on it, uh, reading it with a lawyer's eye, when you look at what it actually forbids, uh, as opposed to sort of the language it uses, it really doesn't have any impact on traditional diversity and inclusion training. It's really the attitude it seeks to bring to that um, training that distinguishes it. 
but if you look at the, 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 the actual letter of it, I don't think that it would actually cause anybody to change um, the diversity and inclusion training that they have going on right now. But I do uh, regret the attempt to make diversity and inclusion training seem to be a negative rather than a positive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating position for the White House, in essence, to say, we think having a conversation about most topics would be problematic. I mean, just the idea of the power of people talking to understand different perspectives, different points of view, and to sort of challenge the underlying principle of we don't want people to talk about it, this topic. Uh, we, we found it to be problematic and, and really, really burdensome. I think, too, that we have to accept that diversity and inclusion is a muscle that we have to build. We have to be willing to be educated to get to where we want to be. And one of the opportunities I think we all have is to make sure that and when we think about the attributes of successful leaders, when we think about the skills that leaders should have, one of those skills should be the ability to lead a diverse team. And we should think deliberately about what does it take in terms of education, exposure, knowledge, awareness, and experience for someone to build the leadership capacity to lead people who are different from them, that think differently, that might approach problems differently from the way that they uh, do, that might think of issues more broadly or more narrowly, or might have different challenges in coming to, to work. Those are muscles that we all have to build in making our organization stronger. Yeah, at Ivy, we talk about harnessing the power of difference to create competitive advantage. And and we start with a basic premise that says, and everyone is different. So we're not trying to be you know, exclusionary in these conversations. And, and it, you're right, it is a muscle we have to build. So so I'd ask us to, to think about this. And, and Fabiola, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with you. But, but I want us to think about why is it that at this day and age, at this stage, at this moment turning into a movement, why is it that each of you still finds yourself remaining hopeful as opposed to discouraged, given how long we've been uh, toiling at this conversation and toiling at these issues and, and struggling around this issue of injustice? What is it that keeps you hopeful right now? Fabiola? Yes, uh, Gary. Well, I wanted to touch a little bit on what Teresa said before I respond to your question. Um, just sure. in general, we're, we're, our organization certainly isn't affected by these government guidelines, but uh, I do feel that this comes from a lack of deep understanding about what those terms as far as diversity, equity, inclusion really mean. And we can't see our own bias, but we're quick to point out those of others. And it the, the leadership who, um, who, who say that this is something that, that should be, we should be against their lived experience is that they don't have bias, which is much different than mine. And I'm, I'm certain everyone else on this call. And there's this a sort of false consensus effect where uh, we automatically assume other people think like us when mostly they don't or ex they don't think like us and they, they don't experience bias. So I really feel like these you know statements are really coming from nowhere. They have no foundation and that that deep understanding, um, it, it doesn't exist. And to go back to to your question, you know, I Again, I am completely outside of DNI in my day to day, but I do value diversity and the perspectives and experiences that people bring in when we set up these norms. We we focus on inclusive behaviors. We create the conditions for better performance, and that 
leads to better, better decision making. You know, it could be, we want to be more creative, we want to be more innovative, we want to generate more solutions and focus on more facts and remain objective. And it's, it's difficult to do that when we're all experiencing groupthink and, and diverse teams and diverse perspectives, when they all come together, um, the work is harder because it's, it's uncomfortable um, and people feel a little less effective. Um, but it's also much harder to find that common denominator. But the decisions are stronger. And I know this. And we have an unequivocal amount of uh, data that shows that diversity and inclusion leads to, you know, stronger um, discussions and decisions and impacts financial uh, performance. And, and those who are embracing it outperform their peers. So there's no backing out from this. You know, we, we know that this works and I want to be a part of that. I want to be part of uh, the group that is moving forward. And, and I want to be a part of the, the group that is seeking equity and seeking resolution. Um, so this will never be not a priority for me. Um, and, I, and I feel like when people have embraced truth and transparency, uh, there are many people who will come on board with them and that is valued. And we need the direction, um, but we also need that transparency as well to, to make progress. Well, thank you. Teresa, why are you hopeful? I'm hopeful because I see uh, so much energy being brought to the movement now. I hear voices being injected into the cause that have not been vocal before. I see people being more conscientious about wanting to produce measurable uh, outcomes. I see a broad swath of the country looking at itself and saying, what can I do differently? What can I do better? And organizations asking themselves the same question, what can we do differently? What can we do better? And deciding as you look back over time and where we were in 1950 and where we would have said we would be in 2020 and realizing how far short we are of where we would have had the aspiration to be, I think is, is humbling uh, in that it tells us the, the scope of the challenge we have in front of us, but also energizing that we can do things better. We do have vast opportunities for improvement and change and to make a difference. Uh, and I see a real desire to invest in that uh, with time, with talent, and with dollars uh, to drive change. Well, thank you. Brad, what yeah, can you I'm, I'm optimistic, too. Uh, I'm optimistic for many reasons. First, cameras and social media shining the light on what's going on in our country. I mean, imagine you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Castillo, on and on, if all you got were, you know, newspaper reports. I remember the Ray Rice incident in football where, um, you know, the reports of abuse and he got a, um, a modest uh, suspension. And then when the video came out, uh, it was a much more substantial one. So cameras and social media connecting people and exposing the truth. Secondly, changes are just happening you know, much more quickly in this country in so many areas. I mean, look at gay marriage. Who would have thought, you know, 10 years ago that we would end up where we are now and hopefully, you know, it stays where it is and, and it actually um, 
in cruise. But we, we are just seeing, I think, in part related to, you know, um, you know, social media, um, you know, we are seeing change in, in many, many areas. And then third, uh, the point that uh, Teresa made uh, and Fabiola as well, that, you know, people of every race, religion and socioeconomic class have joined in this movement. OK, this is not a go it, um, you know, alone thing. And, you know, one of the you know, most inspirational parts of this is, um, you know, is just how broad, you know, this, um, you know, this movement is and, um, you know, the, the, the youngsters and, and this is their this is their country, uh, the, the millennials, the generation, you know, Z's. So I think for all of those reasons, I'm optimistic, but, you know, it's hard work. It, it just, you know, it's um, I think people's hearts are in the right place which is where you need to start. And, and I think, you know, at this point, it's really the, the execution, as I said earlier, this, this law firm anti-racism alliance that I helped found, I'm a board advisor, it, it's really a remarkable organization in that it goes law by law. It lists in every state, uh, every racist law. I mean, maybe that's an overstatement, but, you know, hundreds and hundreds. And it methodically is going about attacking these laws. Now that's not glorious work. You know, that's not, you know, that that's, that's the blocking and tackling, but I think, uh, I think there's a will and I think you've got a lot of people energized. And so for, you know, all of those reasons, I'm optimistic. Thank you. Orlando, what keeps you hopeful? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wholeheartedly uh, acknowledge and celebrate the uh, comments that uh, everyone else in this panel has already made. Um, I alluded to this term before, an extinction burst. It's a psychological term. And, and essentially, if a behavior, before a behavior is completely extinguished, oftentimes before that happens, you see a, a burst in that behavior. So if you're going to go on a diet tomorrow, you might, you might eat a whole lot of cake today. Or if you're going to try to quit smoking tomorrow, you might you know, blow through a, uh, more than you normally would uh, the number of cigarettes you'd smoke in a, you know, today. Um, and so there'd be a burst in that behavior before you work to extinguish it. So I've, I was, I've been raising that question in my mind. And so with some of this just extreme racism that we've seen and some people being emboldened and feeling comfortable and, and I think, you know, leading up to the killing of George Floyd and then that becoming a catalyst for outrage and for protest and for energy and for discussions, unlike any that I've ever had in, in, in my corporate settings, leading to actual listening and then ultimately leading to decisions, which is the key. And so whether it's attacking racist laws or looking at policies within our corporations, organizations, adding more uh, people of color, blacks to their boards, um, and there's been a huge interest and spike in uh, people of color and blacks being added to boards uh, around this country. And so I'm hopeful and encouraged because uh, we're seeing movement. We are not wasting this crisis and people are actually making decisions. And, um, and, 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 as the, and I, I like Brad's point about the role that video and social media have played. When people have actually seen the imagery of some of the things that a subset, a small subset, but still a subset of this society has done, um, we're not standing by silently anymore, and it's it's white, it's black, it's all of us 
are reacting, reacting with outrage, and are quickly using the things that we have at our disposal, the tools and influence that we have at our disposal to make different decisions to drive for change. And because of those reactions and those decisions, I'm hopeful. That's outstanding. Thank you. Thank you all. You know, it's, it's funny because I, I really do think that the, the conversation we're having right now is part of my hopeful. You know, what keeps me hopeful, what allows me to be hopeful is, is a couple of things. One, as, as I think about the way that people are showing up, when I think about the willingness that people have to sort of engage in a dialogue that historically they would have said they were either unaware of or they were just quite frankly uncomfortable talking about. The, the, the big piece, though, is I'm watching organizations that are really acknowledging that their policies, their practices, and their systems are broken around this conversation. And so it isn't just that they're talking about, well, we have to make a, a modest change in, in a person. They're literally saying policies, practices, and systems deserve to be you know, reconstructed and, and, and people need to really calculate how those systems are producing you know, any kind of inequality or unfair outcomes. So, so the willingness to do that is a huge part of our, of our hope at the firm. I, I think the other thing I'll say is that I'm hopeful because every one of you on this panel, every one of you, is making the kind of difference that organizations need and you're showing up in just phenomenal ways. And so I'm absolutely hopeful that I've had a chance to, to spend the time together that we've spent. And, and I, will, I will also say this, I'm hopeful because you all have demonstrated what happens when people find their authentic voice. And, and so I'd encourage anyone that, that's listening to think about what it takes to find your authentic voice. Don't be passive around this topic. Don't sit this one out. This is an opportunity to engage and to weigh in and play. So with that, I will say, Teresa, Orlando, Fabiola, Brad, thank you all so much for taking the time to engage in this conversation. And I look forward to the next chance we get to be together and talk about the progress that we've made around this topic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to It's Complicated, a podcast by O'Melveny and Myers and Ivy Planning Group. This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's rules of professional conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP. Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York, 10036. Telephone, 212-326-2000.